Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I've already posited there may be all sorts of tensions in what I'm saying. And I'm happy to entertain those because they're tensions for me as well. Are we talking about some kind of supersessionism? In other words, as we're describing this in Galatians, I think we're also describing it in a universal epistemology. That it's not a getting rid of the Old Testament in a Marcionite sort of way, but there is the, the reconstitution of that history in Christ, so that we're going to read it differently. But so too with everything else, right? That we're going to read everything. We're, uh, our understanding of our own history. I believe we, we can reconstitute it in the same way. You know, it's so subjective when I start talking about riding my horse as a boy across the prairie. In, in other words, you're, you're saying that Christ is kind of a big deal to the Christian faith. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> everything centers, including our, uh, our epistemology, our ontology, that everything is redone here. I would hope this sounds commonsensical to us, but of course that's not what we're dealing with in talking about Christianity usually because it it is a uh, it is a kind of oh well Christianity is parallel to what we're already doing. Uh, now I can be a good American. I don't think you Canadians have this problem like we got it here. But in other words it's not a reconstitution of people's world or their worldview. And so most people, in fact, are not reading from a Christocentric understanding. And maybe this is the confusing part about everything that we're doing, because I think what I've, I've said it in the past, that I think that the gospel then is the unleashing of the goodness of God in a, in a, in a way, you know, that here is God's goodness. But at the same time, there may be, am I contradicting myself? I, I'm, I'm willing to entertain that. And that is that I'm saying that, well, that can also go bad in a perversion of the gospel. That is that the worst thing and the best thing come to us simultaneously, and that the world has gotten progressively uh, exposed to the light, and that the darkness has been deepened with the advent of Christianity. Do, do you feel the tension with what I just said, though? Because, well, wait a minute, you just said that in an apocalyptic understanding, there is this breaking in, and that in a sense, in other words, we don't do this. But also, I think what needs to be added to this is nonetheless, human agency is playing a role in this thing. It's not in a reformed sense that we're under total depravity and then irresistible grace and all that. No, we're accounting, we're saying, no, the human agent is still playing a role. And so discipleship is a part of this process. And a failed Christian disciple, an apostate Christian, or a perverted Christian, I think is the worst thing that can happen to a human being, because there is no salvation now. The, the opportunity that we had in Christ is undone for us because we've already, in a way, we've perverted the gospel. I just want to throw in a quick anecdote that illustrates that pretty well. I uh, worked with a client in his 70s, and we'll call him Brett. Brett was raised going to church, 
and in his adulthood he would participate as a a youth leader of sorts involved in awanas and such so that was his part of his uh orientation was christian faith as mediated through the church he participated in uh, at the same time he lived in a fairly cold and at the very least from what i could tell a cold and um sometimes verbally abusive family that's kind of the background hearing about christ as savior and experiencing god as incapable of loving brett unless brett's brettness was covered with christ's you know robe of white effectively jesus being the blockade between a angry or impassable god and brett i think this is what mr Axon's talking about right here is that he would go on to um go to vietnam and be ordered he was 17 at the time be ordered to throw Vietnamese men off of a off of a plane and he would do that and then he would go on from that choice and trauma he would go on from that to go back to the states and eventually abuse children and from Awana you know who were attending Awana's sexually abused children and I think as Axon just said perhaps the darkest type of person is an apostate Christian and I think I could see that in Brett's life as he uh, was coming to an end. He uh, regularly faced his demons and his darkness, you know, w- within that very intimate vicinity of, of his experience with darkness at, at the end. And when he did open up briefly, uh, which happened on occasion, opened up to the light, you could see the tenderness, the tenderness and the fear all at once that perhaps God is more loving and gracious than he experienced. But I think because he was taught a Christianity that had one God up and running from reason, that type of God who weighs and measures according to scales, etc., and then and then Jesus, I think that uh, Brett couldn't escape the condemnation of, of God in that setting, therefore only spiraled deeper and deeper into dark feet. And maybe that's the better illustration is to take, I think your illustration could be reduplicated. But we certainly are living through a time when we're not necessarily talking about apostasy, but a perversion, a perversion of the gospel. And of course, in in all of this, we understand, oh, God is still at work. God is breaking through that we're going to encounter the love of God, even in someone like Brett. We can't write people off, whatever their political f- affiliation. Or What I'm describing is the tension in an apocalyptic understanding is that, well, this is something that God has initiated, that God has acted in Christ, and it's not based upon human action. In other words, that comes prior. If we think of Abraham, you know, what God did with Abraham is prior to what takes place with the Jews. What God has done in Christ is prior to anything that we do. And so that it is a breaking in. But I don't think that that is an undoing of human agency. That is a bringing alive of human agency and the potential to participate or fail to, to in some way take this thing in which the powers maybe in you know the levers of power that 
in a kind of uh, dark paganism, levels of goodness and evil were always, it was kind of subdued. There was a definitive limitation to that. I think that what is open to us in Christianity is the limits are off in either direction, that we can expect to encounter profoundly evil people or situations and the uh, profoundly good in extremes, perhaps, in which, you know, this is kind of Gerard, but I think it's also Kierkegaard, uh, in, in a sense that prior to Christ, in, in fact, we're not there. And so we have to enter into this thing in a, in a full, that there's still discipleship, we're still looking to progress, we can all make progress, or we can fail to do that. We can fail in what has been gifted to us in Christ. Is another uh, nuance of what you're saying, could it be that in terms of human agency, it can become more dangerous yeah, yeah, I think that you can put it in strictly Girardian terms. I think Girard ends on kind of a dark note that there is the doing away with possibility with Christianity of a scapegoating mechanism. But what that opens to you to is world destruction, that we can we quite literally can destroy the world through nuclear holocaust, through environmental pollution. We, we have all sorts of new levers of power where the former scapegoating would have channeled that violence, there is no longer that pagan channeling. Uh, so I think you could put it in that sense. Or you can put it in the sense of, you know, just think historically. In a good Eastern point of view, no one ever thought that you could change karma or that you could act. In other words, everything, I think, in both East and West, it's just that it remains in the East that people always functioned within the cosmos. It was just a matter, you know, what religion amounted to was a manipulation of the rules of the cosmos. What happens in Christ is literally the undoing of a cosmic order. That then uh, we see developed in, you know, Marx is fully taking account of this, that you can literally reconstitute the world. But that's a, an opening that I think is given to us in Christ that can be perverted then for the kind of world uh, evil that we've seen in the 20th century, that we have the possibility of a Holocaust, I think a, a, an unleashing historically. But is the problem that they have missed the nonviolent nature? Christian, Christian Dom will go on to, rather than feel that they're scapegoating, that they can speak on behalf of the violent God. Let me give that a, a double answer, and that is that what is violence? Violence is a kind of subject-object duality in which there is always this kind of agonistic struggle. And I guess that every person that comes into Christ to a degree has faced that. Uh, there is that potential that when people love each other, what they've done is they've overcome that duality. In other words, a real-world love, whether you can articulate it or you can do it, that's what you're overcoming, is that you're able to identify then with the other. There is a sense that we can just expect to find love in, in a lot of places, but the fullness of that love, I think, is what we're trying to articulate and then to, to model. That is that there's this violence that is the obstacle. Of course, what you have in the lack of an embrace of a nonviolent Christianity at a, at a minimum, is simply a partial realization 
of the problem and the solution. And so I guess that we can expect a partial, maybe we're going to encounter even in our right-wing nationalist Trump supporting, or even in our Nazi, good Nazi Christians, that there, that there may be a, a kind of element of a capacity for love in certain circumstances. But certainly that has been stunted, that that has not been allowed to fully bloom. And isn't that what we're facing, that there is a, a failure? So yes, I'm agreeing with what you're saying and saying yes, that to not embrace a full, you know, peaceable Christianity, to not recognize the extent of the problem and the universal nature of the solution means that you in some way fail to, to enter into this, either in the way that you live or intellectually or both. Some people do better then they can articulate, and some of us articulate better than we can do. But in some way, that's going to be stunted in people. But I would assume that it's never in anyone that calls themselves a follower of Christ, that if they're not completely degenerate, is still a process that is unfolding. Yeah, that's tough. Yeah, I mean, that's just the reality that we're facing, is that in disproportionate degree, human sacrifice is unfolding before our eyes in a way that it's never gone. You know, the skulls that they found stacked up, I think they recently found Aztec. Oh, we've stacked up skulls higher than that in a, in a day in this country, all in the sacrifice to mammon, that is to the economy. Do we call that religion? You know, it's not an out-and-out -out sacrifice to the gods. What's the name of the book? Mammon? Yeah, yeah. I really like his point with this. And that is that with Max Weber, we've talked about a kind of disenchantment. And his point is that there's been a misenchantment, that in fact, the capitalism or money is still functioning. We're still working in a religious sort of system. And of course, what religion does, and I like the word of kind of misenchantment, that money is kind of the animate force that's enlivening our values, directing our lives, uh, determining our sacrifices. It's still religious, even though, you know, and so his point is, well, we've, we've tended to call that secular. Yeah, but maybe that's a misnomer, that the kind of misenchantment that gets at the same thing that Lacan is talking about in a misrecognition, make connaissance of the, you know, the human ego. It's still religious. The world is still animated by these forces. It's just that now we don't call them spirits and demons and devils, that it's money or it's mammon or it's nationalism or it's uh, some form of perverse uh, human sexuality. Same stuff. It's just that we name it differently. Found the video a, a little bit more heady and then you and Jason arrive at the, the normal conclusion that follows each of these arguments that you're examining. And the uh, embodiment of, the, of ourselves and uh, the lived out reality as we experience it and experience Christ in community as well as uh, in the context of creation and in our own place that we find ourselves. Jason was emphasizing that by slapping his, his flesh on his, his arm. I find that contrast really stark with the uh, Klom argument and talking about Craig and everything before that. I wonder if it's 
this this broadcasting of the philosophical God, however cast you know in the mind of Christians uh, as the theological God, but the broadcasting of this philosophical God and all the ways we get it him up and running that enables so many Christians to go about their lives feeling that uh, Christ has reconciled them as individuals to God, and that's that's basically. Other than, you know, caring for their relatives and a few neighbors and a few co-workers, um, that's the end of the story. Perhaps because of that philosophical God being the one that is orienting their reality in many ways. Or maybe it's easier to default to the philosophical God on, on a lot of issues and to neglect subjecting and submitting oneself and one's orientation to reality to the incarnate Christ. And the vulnerability that comes with doing that in an ongoing and embodied fashion, you know, in community and, and in connection to creation, I'm wondering about that imbalance, if that's part of what's producing this perverse and, and emaciated faith. Yeah, it's kind of a Gnostic. We're, we're still in a, a kind of Gnostic phase or something very similar to a Gnostic phase in the disembodied sort of understanding that I think then, as you're describing it, opens the gap. In other words, as long as there's this gap between subject and object or between the theory and practice of Christianity, that the going to heaven sort of ethic is very different than an embodied ethic. And I think that's what you're describing we can have the two-kingdom kind of understanding in which in one kingdom that we allow for the full pragmatic play of evil, that we do evil that good may abound, and that's just the necessities under which we operate. And then in the other kingdom, we employ, you know, in a limited, very limited fashion, what we might imagine, you know, is a a kind of disembodied loves. As long as we're dealing with a disincarnate Christianity, we're still dealing with a dualism, uh, with the antinomy of uh, subject and object. What was the? Well, I can't, I can't uh, run down the heady part. That's what I thought was. I think you know what I I may have been doing with the uh, creation ex nihilo. There may be a kind of danger in that language if we imagine we got a handle on creation in in describing it that way, as if now we've named it. And of course, that's not the point, is that creation ex nihilo is not an explanation of how this happened, but it's a mystery. And so the God that we encounter on the other side of that is mysterious. And the God that we know in Christ, then, is our only link, I think, to get to that creator, to imagine that we have a, a link and some sort of given understanding in these philosophical arguments. So that that's kind of my hesitation. And so that was my point that resurrection is the, the realization. You know, this is the way that Paul is using that language. He equates what happens in the faith of Abraham with creation from nothing. In other words, it, it is the same kind of belief. Maybe not, you know, leap of faith, I think, is the wrong wrong way to describe that, or fideism, or all the insults that, that people use. But it is a new order of understanding in that you recognize that there is no foundation to this. That would be what I mean by both resurrection and creation ex nihilo, that here is an alternative foundation, if we still want to use that language.
the way in which we've instilled various proofs for God and got a got up and running from our own reason, I guess almost easier it makes our faith walk because when uncertainty sets in, you can just turn to uh, systematic theology. The way I, I've said this before, you know, that we don't own this, and I think what that means is that it's subject to continual revision. But by revision, what we mean that we can make progress theologically and ethically in, in being followers of Christ. To have the certainty here can play a role in which we imagine that we got it, we own it, we can manipulate it, and it's closed so that there's no addendum, no re-understanding. And I think what we're open to in faith and a, you know, if we want to drop the word certainty, but at least an understanding, is that it's continually expanding, it's being revised, that in Christ we uh, depend upon this understanding as it resides in Him and not in ourselves. And so we are continually, it's like coming to know a person, that that is a, a continual process. That's the danger in all these arguments. I think there's closure within the same kind of closure that you get in any kind of imminent frame that, oh, the universe is now, now we got it up and running. Now we know the law. And closure is what catalyzes us into demigod. Yeah. The opposite. Matt has been emphasizing to me the role of humility, that closure would be, uh, I got it. And humility is a continual recognition that this thing's bigger than I am. I've been really having to get on to Paul about that, about his lack of humility. So, you know. <laughs> I, I need it. I need constant reminder. Now we were just talking about the fathers. You'd like some, a lot of the Eastern fathers, like they talk about humility as the entry point into not only our spiritual growth, but, uh, you know, sort of our understanding of God coming to know who Christ is requires as a starting point. And I think that that rings true for them and for us both, you know, epistemically and in every other way that humility has to be the entry point into knowing the, you know, the ineffable gods, right? I mean, you know, we, we got to stay humble. Humility is a kind of epistemology. Yeah. That's good. Just that we're shaped by the knowledge that we have of Christ and that is our form of knowing, our frame of knowing. I mean, the hardest people to deal with in my in my experience are the people who know you can't tell them anything, right? Like you can't tell them anything theologically. You can't really suggest anything differently than to what they already know is true. They don't have any room for doubt, you know, in their, um, the, the, you know, sort of uh, doubt is kind of like the, it would be kind of like the opposite of faith for a lot of folks, right? Whereas I don't think that that's true for the fathers. I don't think that that's true for us, that, you know, there's room for doubt, I think, in a, an authentic faith. But I guess what I'm saying in our in our context is it's very hard with ideology and, you know, Tyler was talking about demagoguery and things like this. It's like it's very – there's not much room, you know, if you're a hardcore leftist or hardcore right-wing, right-winger, there's not going to be much room for the other you know, in your epistemology. In, and I think as Christians, it's like, well, we're called to be humble and to receive the other, whether it's a maybe someone with a whole different worldview or, or religion or no religion at all, or, you know, maybe they have a different sexuality or, you know, different orientation or whatever else that uh, we're called to not pretend like we already 
like the one thing that they teach us in chaplaincy is don't ever say, you know, I understand what you're going through. That's a bad idea. You know, you, you, you know, just assume that you don't understand what they're going through, even if you've gone through it yourself, because it's to in some way sort of marginalize, you know, or minimize their pain and what they're going through. For me, it's very difficult. And, and being someone who struggles myself, you know, with pride, you know, that, I think that that's a really good spiritual discipline that yields fruit epistemologically. Yeah, I like that, that if, if you have it, you're not open to the other. If you're not open to the other, you're not open to loving the other. And of course, you're potentially open to killing them because they're so wrong. Well, and for the fathers, you know, they're saying if you're not open to the other, it's like you're ultimately not open to Christ himself. Not that he's the big other in the Zizekian terms, but that he is, you know, he's the holy one. You know, he's, uh, he comes to us, you know, as a stranger, uh, you know, both as a, you know, it's kind of a paradoxical that he's a friend, but he's also, you know, he comes to us in the faces of the people that we, you know, the prisoners and you know, whoever else. So we have to have the humility to, to recognize him. It's very difficult if we, if we were talking about Hegel the other day, the Hegel's going to give us a theory of everything. You know, this is like Kierkegaard's biggest problem with Hegel. <laughs> He's like, you know, that you're going to presume that you can stand outside objectively of, uh, you know, and then describe the system to us as if you're not a subject uh, or a subject within the, within the frame. And then it requires, you know, truth is subjectivity takes, I think the humility to kind of recognize that, you know, we're finite, we're limited. We, we don't, we don't know. We don't know. You know, this is like, this is just old, right? Spiritual wisdom is like the beginning of all wisdom is to realize that you don't have any wisdom. <laughs> the questions are that the, the continue to come, that the entry into an understanding, you know, as you, Matt, as you were describing that, I was thinking, you know, of the, when we think of the Zizekian or Lacanian other, or what I assume that Paul is describing as the, the law. The, the thing about the law is not that one has a grasp of it. In other words, even thinking of the Hegelian system, Hegel is describing this thing. You know, he's, he's projecting this, that this is out there. This is no, the way that you know. So that we might do this that with many things. My church does my believing for me or the history of my church, or my priest does my praying for me, or the big other knows, and the big other is housed over here in something other. The difference between that and what we're describing here is that this is something that we presume does not just reside in an institution, but we enter into it. In other words, Ironically, I think what we're describing in a subject-object kind of knowledge and the big other knows, and we presume that it's always out there, is that we in some way always count ourselves in some strange way outside of that, that the law is there, and what we would like to do is affirm the law and insert ourselves into it and to anyway question it, to raise doubts about it. You know, that's almost forbidden because it's actually quite a fragile system. The whole point of a person's life is to, in some way, imagine this other and to insert yourself into that other to obtain your own self. Maybe the way that it's a kind of a, a different approach to the same thing, that what we're describing here is, well, in, in a sense, this knowledge that we're describing is subjective, not in the sense of that it's relative, 
but that it pertains to us as persons and that it pertains to the way that our own subjectivity is constituted. So it's not simply a knowing as in these arguments that is positing this uh, a kind of law, but it's a very different order of knowing. Um, if you go to the grocery store in your car, you can go into the store and you can look at all the categories. You can go and purchase your box of cereal at Whole Foods and you get the whole thing uh, and there's no organic involvement in what has taken place. And the other is an organic involvement with the growing and production and in fact the uncertainty uh, that this seed is going to produce fruit. And so there yeah. is a kind of faith exercise uh, in the organic understanding. Yeah, a posture of humility versus a posture of power or control. Yeah, yeah, that, that gets at it. And that must apply in every, in every sense. That To objectify, you know, I guess we can objectify food, we can objectify people, that it just becomes a commodity that in some way is a, a reductionistic system. And in the other, it is a system, but it's one that we enter into and are participants in the, in the process. And those are two very different things. That's an organic kind of illustration that could produce lots of fruit. <laughs> I like the way that uh, the Paul was describing, the, it was back there a little, little while ago, but he was talking about how the system's actually quite fragile for, for a lot of, you know, folks sort of ideology is very fragile and the, to question the, the merely the introduction of sort of a question, you know, what Zizek would call, I guess, like the hysterical, right? Like there's, there's no hysterics allowed, you know, they're, they're, they're denied admittance into the conversation. And as a matter of fact, you're immediately sort of cast into some sort of suspicion, right? Like you're held in suspicion. As soon as you begin to ask, you're introducing kind of like a humility almost into the conversation, right? By saying like, well, what if there's factors that we don't know? Like Paul is doing, right? Like rhetorically throughout Romans, he's kind of saying, well, should we do this so that grace may abound? He's like, he's interjecting like these these questions that are almost sort of shocking. Zizek and Paul, you'd have to correct me here, but Zizek, you know, describes him as sort of a hysteric rather than, you know, it's the per it's the sort of the perverse epistemology that would not admit to not knowing or, or you know, like you sort of embody, like Paul would always give the, the, um, the explanation of the guy who would... <laughs> You know the the Pee Wee Herman or whoever who would expose himself, you know, in the in the movie theater, and then sort of you know flash everybody and run out or something like that. You know that I guess I'm not sure exactly how that relates, Paul, but uh, isn't that how you you know sort of like a there is a way. I thought I put that visualization behind me, but uh, <laughs> now it's back. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry for reintroducing that uh, that into your into your brain, but yeah, it's it's, it's kind of a strange thing, right? To to I've, I've experienced this, you know, I've experienced this uh, with folks where as soon as you begin to sort of even raise a question, that it's in me, it's it poses a you know a potentially sort of devastating epistemological chasm between you as whatever as a learner and then as a knower. You know, an alienation is kind of like I feel like introduced into the conversation in some way, but maybe I'm just babbling and Paul can help bring resolution. 
No, no, that's it. The impetus to ingratiate yourself to the law, to insert yourself into the big other, to be accepted by the Father, speaks of an inherent alienation. In other words, the drive behind that whole thing is that there's alienation. Uh, and so in some way, you know, why does Pee Wee Herman or you know, any pervert, the pervert doesn't question the law. The pervert would just either one of two things would pleasure you know, in a kind of transgressive sense, the agent behind the law. The audience is kind of the big other for Pee Wee Herman. And what the big other really, you know, he's, he's willing to, to pleasure that, that big other. So to any pervert, you know, the pervert is getting enjoyment only through mediation. That the shoe, you know, the shoe fetish or, you know, whatever it is, that in some way it's always mediated and is never a direct thing because in some way there's always the preservation of this big other as something that you're alienated from. So alienation is the key part of it. The his hysteric is one who questions the, the law itself, who questions the big other. And of course, that's what Paul is doing, the questioning of the law that I do what I don't want to do and what I want to do, I don't do. And so I think the difference is that once alienation is overcome in Christ, that there is then the death of the big other. There is the death of God if God has been the, the way that we've named that big other. I think the Zizekian misunderstanding is that even, even with Zizek, you know, he understands that atheism is not exactly the answer because atheism just reproduces itself with other kinds. And so my understanding is, well, no, actually you need Christ, you need, an alt, you need reconciliation, you need oneness, because otherwise you're stuck in either hysteria or perversion. Yeah, I guess the, my point in even talking about that and is that you know you and I have been talking about well whatever whatever it is that we're trying to do as Christians you know we're trying to build relationships with other people and sort of unify people together in Christ and then you know and in truth and things like this and like you said the, the very dangerous maybe the most dangerous thing is to have whatever you want to call it like a heretical Christianity or a Christianity that's in some way false it's, it's very difficult right to I guess I'm just for purely existential you know just like kind of practical reasons it's like well. I found that whenever you know you question someone and say, "Well, you know, maybe this isn't you know as Christians uh, something that we should sign up for, or that we should endorse." And I don't know, maybe there's no answer to this, but it seems like you know the people who do kind of have that unquestioning obedience to the ideology or that unquestioning allegiance to this to the form of thought that they've subscribed to, it only sort of, like the, that questioning only seems to further sort of instantiate them into the position that they already hold because they begin to react in a very defensive way and begin to uh, sort of fortify their their position rather than having a conversation maybe whenever Paul I wonder if his readers when they originally heard Romans you know were sort of exacerbated by those questions uh, and wanted to kill him or did they you know did it open up a space for thought for them and for us and so I guess that's that's kind of like the difficulty right is that, that that's kind of what we're talking about in this class we're forging plowshares we're trying to make peace and unify people and bring people together to say well 
without being flaky, you know, without, you know, without sort of doing away with the need for reconciliation and forgiveness and restoration, all these different things and doing all the hard work. Yeah. But how do we have a, how do we have a fruitful conversation and dialogue? Maybe even psychologically, I guess my question is, is, well, what happens though when you're dealing with someone who's perverse is, is they, they probably don't even understand why it is that they're doing what they're doing, you know, let alone like sort of like the epistemological sort of like they, they're not gonna be like run it down probably any any better than I can run my own down you know um, but it, it becomes very difficult even in the work that we do you know as chaplains or you know um, in in uh, Tyler's work or in the stuff that Tim's doing the stuff that you're doing with people the dialogue that we have and the way that we have it today whether it's on social media or with the divided sort of way that things are it's a hard thing to do to even introduce especially for Christians, right? Because if you, if you enter, if you ask a question even to like people on the left and say, well, you know, let's talk about abortion. That, well, wait a second. Now your questions, like you, you're, you're trying to make us question our allegiance to sort of liberal ideology. And of course, we know the problems with the right whenever you try to introduce those questions to Christians and pose those questions like, well, should we, should we endorse someone who doesn't for instance, you know, speak out against racism or, or whatever. It's a very difficult thing to be able to to hold a conversation with anybody, you know, even myself that, that lacks, I guess, like a epistemic humility to say like, well, I don't really have this stuff figured out because I feel like once you do take that position, you're like, no, I got this. That it's almost like our tendency is towards violence. Like we're going to use that knowledge to try to dominate someone, drag them into our position, maybe literally do violence to them, excommunicate them. So I guess, Paul, I guess my question after all that rambling would be, you know, psychologically, how do you, is it just one of those things where you let someone like in a Socratic way kind of talk themselves into the truth using their own, like using good questions? What you're describing is almost a closed circle. It's sort of, you know, like the, uh, Freudian notion of seduction. The patient denies that they've been seduced as a child. Well, this is a sign that they've been seduced because the denial is a sign of the repression. The recent thing with Trump, you know, that we have uh, obviously there has been this great cheating in the election, and the denial of this is an affirmation. There is no questioning. In fact, the questioning is a sign that you yourself then have succumbed. The very possibility of questioning is a sign that you've misunderstood. I'm talking from the pervert view. So the pervert can't question. He can't. There is no dialogue. I think we're faced with 7 million, you know, perverts. How how many is it? Uh, 70 million? How many are we at? That is that, well, hopefully it's not that many. That is that that there is an unquestioning. And of course, we see this again and again in fascism, that the more transgressive, you know, this is the the whole thing, that you can't question the primal father, but you can't question the president. You can't question the, the law because that questioning is itself then a, a sign that you've defected from true belief. How do you get out of that circle? How do you break it open? How do you convince somebody? But see, I, I think we can recognize this. You know, this is the reason I really like the, the book on mammon. I think we can all kind of recognize that we're, we're subject to the same thing in, ter- in terms of capital. But the difference is that 
it's sort of like the guy in the matrix who is it the the one guy can say well i know it's a matrix Cipher. i know that this piece of meat is unreal uh, but nonetheless i do it anyway and it's almost like it's not even enough that you know that it's an ideology or you know that it's a matrix or you know that it's a lie because you can do it anyway wasn't that zizek's thing on donald rumsfeld it, it's a closed circle that uh also there's also how do you put it you know that there's also what we do know <laughs> that we don't know or something what was what was the other option that we know what we don't know we know what we know we know what we don't know we don't know there's some things we don't know that we don't know right zizek zizek was like yeah but what about the stuff that was <laughs> like that you do know that you're pretending that you don't know. Yeah, it's the it's the repression. That's the matrix. That was your that's your uh, point with cipher, right? Yeah, that and even with Marx, as I understand it, you know, Marx, I I guess thought it was enough to expose the ideology. But uh, what we're saying is, well, no, actually, exposure perhaps isn't even enough. We all know that a dollar bill is not intrinsically valuable nonetheless we will let mammon order our lives value our values and that we set our whole life's goal on achieving you know more of this so we know it but we do it anyway yeah i mean this even happens in like orthodox circles right like if you question you know this can this happens in any in any sort of i feel like right in like almost any sphere of it can happen in a corporate, in an office, you know, corporate environment. It can happen um, in economic uh, sort of theory, political theory, uh, theological, philosophical. In other words, like the, if you begin to bring some sort of variable <laughs> that people don't like, you know, into the equation of like, well, wait a second, some sort of questioning variable that you're immediately, you know, you're you're kind of like ostracizing yourself from the group think or from the spirit of the. Uh, of the group you're, you're it's what you just said it's like you're immediately you're like you're already showing your hand even in asking a question that you're not one of us mm -hmm. the people who are you know that we don't ask those sorts of questions around here you know yeah so i don't know how to give i don't know how to yeah i almost have given up but i don't know that I've, I've learned maybe tyler can help us to it's like well how do you how do you have a conversation with someone who already knows everything you don't <laughs> i don't know um i know uh in new york when we were doing urban missions there. But one of the things they talked about was learning to let go of conversations that weren't ripe, you know, that weren't there yet. And to be open and aware and searching for people who were getting close to or ready to have conversations. And then just maintaining connection to the people who weren't, you know, if you feel like you have the space and energy to do that yeah. until something might change. There's a, a Abuse principle for domestic abuse, it's called the rule of seven, break the break the rule of seven, which is a number that, strangely enough, it's a fairly consistent number. It takes seven moments of the abused partner becoming aware of the abuse. It takes seven of those moments for them to eventually leave the partner. So they, they become aware there's some kind of protestation or demarcation of that event, but then they dive back into their delusion, into their perversion on their side of the 
relation as being the the abused person and they'll take that woman or generally women but you know woman or man about seven times to finally awake awaken to the point of leaving i don't know if that's similar for the depths of pride and delusion that you're talking about in terms of people who are hard to talk to i mean yeah you guys know i'm sure it's like it's kind of like a funny thing but you guys know i love uh dbh i love his work and stuff like that but you know i'd almost be like afraid and this is telling right like i I don't know that i'd even want to have a conversation with david because it's like well why why is that well because it's like he knows everything you know and i would be afraid that he would be violent towards me like i you know i've seen him do it right like you know it's like i've seen him you know make people feel stupid or right so in other words like there's a and that, that shouldn't be, that shouldn't be right. Like that were, I guess I'd rather not know as much as someone, but that people feel comfortable to sort of like have a conversation with me because I'm not going to clonk them over the head or, or sort of be, you know, sort of, I guess for lack of a better word, like kind of be violent towards them because, you know, it's like, that's the thing is for as much as I love David and respect and love his work, it's really hard to talk to someone who thinks that they know everything I've had, you know, I've, I've, we've all had those types of people that we know and conversations that we had where it's like there's a one-upsmanship or whatever you want to call it, where it's very, very difficult to have a conversation with that sort of personality because they're not trying to kind of like open themselves, I feel like, to maybe to the to like someone else who might not, in their opinion, like know as much as they do. If you lack that humility, it's like you're always going to kind of probably look down on someone and either condescend to maybe give them, a, you know, a conversation or, or a gentle answer or to like, you know, violently just like dismiss them and just be like, oh, well, that's stupid and you're stupid. And you know what I mean? And you shouldn't even be yeah. asking questions because oh, that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's a form of violence, you know, that we can have on either end of either talking down to someone or kind of like dismissing them altogether. I think there's a, like on the more incarnational relational side of or kind of aspect of this solution. Um, I don't know if there is one. And this is hard during COVID. So I think your question is really difficult during COVID. <laughs> but there's this other aspect of incarnating, you know, your faith and your personhood and your connection to Jesus into people's lives. In terms of people that are like that, for me, incarnating my faith and Jesus into people's lives has been really effective. But I don't have a lot of people currently in my life that, you know, talk that way or look, look down to people at that level that you're describing. However, the people that I'm around, they're not interested in Jesus. In fact, they're kind of licking their wounds from their childhood or their teenage years in terms of the way Christians interacted with them. So there's definitely a sensitivity there um, and uh, maybe defensiveness in some ways. But as the years have gone by of being in a community of people, a couple of communities here in Squim, my life lived among them has made it to where the conversation's are a lot more open and I can speak, you know, pretty freely about Jesus now, you know, as a result of all the, I guess, the loving that I've shared and that they've felt comfortable sharing with me. But in terms of prideful people or, you know, condescending people, I don't know if that's like, uh, maybe this is a cop-out. If that's pearls before swine, we should just keep those people in our lives and in our vicinity, but not give them too much energy. Uh, until context makes that a more relevant choice. Um, I think of people like that, and they're the ones most likely to uh, judge and condemn and make my life uh, a lot harder (laughs) if I let them in. Yeah. On the political side, it's like, you know, you're a sheep if you even question, you know, if you say, well, maybe we should get the vaccine or whatever, you know, it's like, oh, you know, you're a 
you're a sheep because we know that COVID is a made up thing. Uh, oh yeah. You know what I'm saying? Or on the left, it's like, well, if you, if you even question and say, well, I don't know, you know, well, woman's choice or whatever. It's like, well, wait a second. You're saying like you're going against our sort of ideology and you're just, a, yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I totally relate. And that, it's a frustrating feeling. I, the church that we feel closest to is Episcopal church, which we really kind of dropped off from because of it's all online now. And we do so much online stuff with the kids. We're not really participating online with the church, but, but when we are, it, that's where we're at is like, we feel like we, we can't have an open conversation about LGBTQ or about some of the, some other issues that feel like they've sort of made their Episcopalian statements at some point. I don't know, whenever they had those committees to question those statements or positions, we end up feeling like sort of archaic people that wandered a little too far out of their conservative realm, you know, for, you know, we feel very different than them whenever we start to ask questions, even though we don't necessarily have a position that is against where they're at, but we have a position that cautions and asks questions about those, their positions. And yet, we don't feel like there's actually a safe place to ask those questions, even in a liberal church, which just mirrors our experience in a conservative church. Yeah. If you defy like woke culture or whatever, and, and you know, I mean, I would consider myself, and you know, or, you know, but you have the people that are sort of going hard against critical race theory, you know, on the right. And then you have, but to my friends on the left, if I say something about, well, maybe trans, you know, women shouldn't compete in like men who are saying that they're women probably shouldn't compete in like weightlifting against other women. That doesn't seem fair, you know, <laughs> or, yeah. or like, you know, it's like, by the way, maybe they're taking scholarships uh, from biological women, you know, and it's like, but then, you know, on Twitter or whatever, it's like, well, the, 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 that crowd just, you know, tries to like eviscerate you for saying that, you know, you're, you're just a transphobe, homophobe, you know, in other words, like there's, there, there's just as much sort of ideological commitment, you know, and, 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 no, and like lack of room for conversation on the left, on the far left as there is in the far right. That's for sure. There's an unquestioning sort of allegiance that you cannot, you can't introduce a third way or and then just, you know, I guess just a question that's kind of like outside of the confines. This is Noam Chomsky's point over and over that the conversation is always sort of relegated between these two poles of, of discourse. And, and once you kind of, interject a question from that are outside of the confines of this sort of of the discourse that's been sort of already established right as like the kind of like the medium sort of uh whatever you know way that we're gonna like we're only gonna have this conversation with these strict parameters and so like people like chomsky or whoever else they don't even get a, a seat at the table because it's like their their viewpoint or their questions seem so sort of absurd Actually, they're the best questions. You know what I mean? That they're the most relevant questions. They're the most helpful questions. But I don't feel like you know, even even like Paul's Axton's you know form of the faith. It's like, well, it's hard for him to even get a hearing, right? Because because his the, the conversation that we're having doesn't fall between the parameters that are normally set within the confines of you know, the church or sort of popular academic circles. That's just the way it is. I don't know how you ever get beyond that. You know, Jesus wasn't a Pharisee. He wasn't a Sadducee. We should have a third way epistemology or a third way economic or, you know, or politics. But unfortunately, I guess that doesn't always help with, you know, the dialogue. 
because then everybody's just mad at you. This was the Anabaptist problem, right? It was that the Catholics and the Protestants, they all hated them. <laughs> you know, they didn't conform to, the, to those parameters. In the Bronx, we, we were doing these English conversation groups, and I, I was leading one, and there was a Saudi Arabian guy, Iranian guy, and Chinese students. And ended up having two of the Chinese students um, want to do a discovery Bible study, which was just six questions and their Chinese translation, you know, got them Chinese translation of the, of the Bible. They started off saying that Jesus, from their perspective, from what they learned in China, Jesus was basically a fairy tale. And I went through and facilitated a Bible study with them once. And then from then on, they facilitated in their language with each other and sometimes a friend. I meet up with them regularly and talk about it before or after, see how they're doing. Yeah, they, they self-guided with these questions and, and the Bible and um, most of them through the Gospels. By the end of it, I can't remember how they worded it anymore, but they were incredibly impressed by Jesus to the point of questioning the social systems of, of China and to the point of becoming highly cognizant and, and aware of the uh, injustices and the, the minority groups in China. They found Jesus incredibly kind, etc. And at the end of, of their time going through the Gospels, in a way that I hadn't quite heard before, they expressed the lordship of Jesus and expressed that if Jesus was, you know, the one that people look to for leadership, that, you know, the world would be at peace. And this was their conclusions through them reading the studies and asking questions and very little direct input from me. And at the end of that, yeah, I think that they arrived at a third way that would be hard for me to completely describe, considering their studies were in Chinese and everything. Uh, but it was really a moving experience to witness what that third conversation directed through the Spirit and, and incarnate Christ, you know, can, can generate. Guys, it's been a good conversation. Appreciate you both. Appreciate you all. Great conversation. Great class. See you guys. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.